you have to be mindful of the fact that when you release your data, at least a few times a year, we get a negative press story where someone highlights the fact that we're not where we want to be. And so I think you have to be willing to take the good with the bad. But what I always say to people is those conversations are happening at virtual water coolers anyways. What we're doing instead is just that conversation is not happening in the shadows. It's happening in the light. Welcome to the Greenhouse Podcast, hiring for what's next. I'm Daniel Chait, CEO of Greenhouse. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about diversity in hiring. We'll touch on many issues, ranging from attracting a broader slate of candidates to reducing bias in interviewing, to building an inclusive culture, and much, much more. I recently sat down with Katie Burke, Chief People Officer at HubSpot. Katie is a treasure. She always has something interesting to say about any hiring topic and no more than around DE&I. Welcome, Katie. Daniel, great to chat with you as always. Thanks for having me. So much to talk about. You have so much to say. Let's get right into it. I think we're here on the podcast to talk about all things DE&I and you know, what are some of the leading edge practices? What are some of the issues that companies are facing? And I know you've been really in the mix and in the thick of it for a long time. Let's start talking about HubSpot's annual diversity report. HubSpot has been, I think, unusually public with uh, diversity numbers and by producing quite a thoughtful and detailed report on its progress on diversity every year. Can you tell us about what that is and, and why HubSpot does that? Yeah, absolutely. 2021 will be our fifth year releasing our diversity data. And to your point, we're pretty comprehensive in what we release. And I think embedded in there are kind of two core beliefs. One is one of our values at HubSpot is transparency. I don't think you can say one of your values is transparency and then not share with candidates kind of what your data looks like. And then the second thing is I hear from a lot of CEOs saying, we're going to wait to release the data until things are better. And I always say to people, like, there are cringeworthy parts of our data. There are times, you know, when I look through our data on a regular basis or look back on a year and and really cringe. And so it's not that everything in the report looks great and rosy. It's a huge mistake to think that your candidates don't recognize that tech has a diversity problem or that corporate America has a diversity problem. Instead, what they want is progress, not perfection. They want to know what's your intentionality? What are you actually doing? What numbers have you moved? What numbers have you not moved? What candidates are looking for truly is not an expectation that you have everything figured out because candidly, no organization does. It's the investment and intentionality you're putting behind changing what your current environment looks like. That's what we get a lot of feedback on from our candidates is not the numbers themselves, but how we articulate our commitment to moving them. And I think the accountability for our leadership team is really important and integral to how we think about this as a core business priority. Fantastic. So you said you've been doing this for five years. Take us back to the beginning. What what was that discussion like inside HubSpot to do this? And was there fear? Was there excitement? How did that play out? Yeah, I think there were all of those things. Part of the challenge is, so there's the do we or don't we question. And I think the do we or don't we question is met with a ton of trepidation, right? So there's the fear. What are people going to think when they know that we are not as diverse as we'd like to be? What if we don't move the needle? What if, you know, over time we don't make the progress that we think we will? What if we step back in that progress? Those are all very real fears. And then on the excitement side of things, I think there's also just a lot of energy from employees and from candidates to measure what they individually care about. So a good example is over time, we've added more categories, but 
For our first few reports, we didn't have the percentage of folks who self-identify as LGBTQIA, or we didn't have folks who identified as parents or veterans. Part of the challenge is actually like harnessing that excitement, but also being really intentional about what you can share, what you can move the needle on, and what you're kind of able to do in a given amount of time. That is really, really, really hard. It is really hard to look at the other side of a table with an employee and say, this year, we're not going to include this category. Mm-hmm. A good example is, you know, the categorizations of race in the United States have two problems with them. One, they are so unsatisfactory to people who identify, for example, as multiracial. Afro-Latina, for example, is not one of the options included. And so it's really dissatisfying for people whose identity are more complex than the categories the U.S. government provides. But moreover, when you're building a global company, the U.S. categories of race just simply don't fit. So part of what we had to do is a real education for folks on, yes, we completely agree the U.S. government categorization on race are insufficient to describe or represent your ethnicity. And yet, here's why we're going to use it as a forcing function for us to get better here, because it's the best data we have. Those conversations are really, really hard, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it for anyone that it's easy. But I do think when you approach it with empathy and intentionality that your employees and candidates really appreciate it. Ultimately, whose decision was it to publish then? Was it the CEO? Was it you? Was it a vote? How did that go? It was my work with our founders and the founders made the decision here. And I think when you value transparency, you have to live it and walk it. And oh, by the way, that you know you manage to what you measure. So for example, we set revenue goals and targets. We set retention goals and targets. One of the things I really admire about Brian Dermesh is that they are first principles decision makers. And so on this, it was really first principles. Do we believe we are better at doing things when we measure them? Yes. Do we believe that if we value transparency that our candidates do too? And do we believe this is important? On those three metrics, it was actually a relatively easy decision. And so they have been huge proponents from the start. Just, and that probably helps explain why uh, HubSpot was so far in front of so many other companies having now over the past five years followed follow suit. I like to think so. And I also think, you know, you have to be mindful of the fact that when you release your data, at least a few times a year, we get a negative press story where someone highlights the fact that, you know, we're not where we want to be. And so I think you have to be willing to take the good with the bad. But what I always say to people is those conversations are happening at like virtual water coolers anyways. Our candidates of color right now are still going like, huh, you know, I don't love uh, some of this data or some of the pockets of data and where I see myself in them what we're doing instead is that conversation is not happening in the shadows. It's happening in the light. And it's really a conversation that candidates can talk to their recruiters about and push their hiring managers on. And I think that in a super competitive talent market, people want and deserve that. And so it gives us a conversation piece. It gives us clarity on how this should enter in the conversation for candidates. It forces our hiring managers to know their stuff on this. It really puts the onus on all of us as hiring managers to make sure we can answer those really important and thoughtful questions from our candidates. So what does that look like? How do I, as a hiring manager at, at HubSpot, is it just incumbent on me to read the whole report and become expert at it? Do you provide them training and resources or talking points? How do they know? 
a few different things that we do on that front. One, you know, you and I have joked about this, but I've never met someone who doesn't think they're a good interviewer. Like everyone thinks they're by nature a good interviewer, right? And, you know, you and I both know that the data is really clear that not everyone is a good interviewer and not just on DEI. And so I think the first thing you do is train people on how to interview inclusively. And so one of the things we did was we doubled back on what it really means to build a great interview slate. So for example, there is a lot of discussion on making sure that you have underrepresented minority representation in candidate slates. And what our data shows is that it is equally as important to make sure that the folks that people interview with are representative of the type of company that you're trying to build. And so what we've really looked at is the data, then the training, and made sure that people really understand that if someone asks at HubSpot, how do you prioritize DEI, we're not just talking about the next event or, for example, Latinx Heritage Month or, you know, Women's History Month. We're actually talking about some of the nuts and bolts that we are infusing in their experience from day one. And our hiring managers can, should, and will be able to speak to that. The second thing is we've added director plus messaging to our diversity report where when we send it out, we actually ask people to say, okay, rather than viewing this as like a cool feature that someone else releases, this is data that you can, should know, reflect on, reflect on your own team's performance because you'll get questions about it. And I think that imperative ask of our directors to make sure that it's something they are part of messaging to their teams has helped them feel a part of the conversation versus the recipients of it. For sure. Can you just unpack something you said a minute ago? You talked about the interview slates and how they need to represent the company you're trying to build. We are proponents of the Rooney rule, as many companies are, but the Rooney rule is necessary versus you know sufficient to transform the composition of your company. And what I mean by that is it is no accident that the vast majority of BIPOC hires in the United States are entry level, not at the manager or director or VP level. And so if you want to create real change on that, you have to look at the folks who are making the decisions about who gets in and who gets promoted. And oftentimes that is essentially recycling power in an organization, right? And you recycle power in intentional and unintentional ways. So what we found is a lot of our hiring managers aren't out to create the same looking team that they have, but they rely heavily on referrals. They rely heavily on indicators that someone's going to fit their team versus add to it. And we really had to push on making sure that the folks who are actually making hiring decisions at HubSpot are reflective of the company we want to build in the future. And that means training a bunch of interviewers, being thoughtful about how much we expect of BIPOC interviewers at HubSpot, not asking them to do more work than we would other folks, and then encouraging hiring managers to think about if you are unable to build a truly diverse hiring slate of interviewers with folks within your team, that's a problem. So rather than saying like, oh, I just can't feel that that's an issue, that is something that you need to have the courage and intentionality to fix and be thoughtful about. And so I think that is an overlooked element of moving the needle on diversity in many companies, because the perpetuation and recycling of power is a very real thing. And I think it has unintended consequences for both the business and for what your candidate and hiring pool looks like long-term. I think most of our listeners have heard the renewal from various people we've spoken to on the podcast. Different people have different takes on it. What's the HubSpot take? Yes, the HubSpot take is that it is 
problematic, but powerful. <laughs> so the Rooney Rule for context originated, you know, with the National Football League, which let's just call it what it is, does not have the rest, best reputation for diversity at the moment. But the history behind it was that the National Football League has always been black in terms of player composition, but the head coaches and GMs who were leading the NFL were not reflective of their player base. And so a gentleman by the name of Jim Rooney pioneered the idea that for every open head coaching rule, there was going to be at least one diverse candidate. Now, the problems with it are start to unfold quickly. One is you cannot tokenize one individual. So the data is clear that if you double that number, in other words, that there is not one token female or underrepresented minority candidate, but two, not surprisingly, the hiring numbers go up significantly. But also you got to make sure that this slate of people making hiring decisions is as diverse as what you want to hire for. And then the third place where the Rooney Rule falls down is it can't just be about hiring. Not surprisingly, you will have more folks fail from a retention perspective if they don't have strong mentorship, allyship, sponsorship, you name it, once they join your organization. And so it's not enough to focus on the D part of DEI work. The Rooney Rule doesn't help anything with regard to how someone succeeds once they're in your organization. We're believers in it because the construct forces people to think about and have accountability on what diversity means on their team and to work with their recruiters on it. But we believe it is not sufficient to drive real long-term change. We are proud advocates of it. We stick with it, but we also make sure that we're augmenting it with some things that create real change over time. I want to get back to something you mentioned a, a little while ago. It doesn't end with recruiting, but that DEI carries through to the entire employee lifecycle, and specifically around a topic you mentioned, which is allyship, the idea that that's important. I'd love to just learn a little bit what does allyship really mean? It's a term you sort of hear DEI people talk about. What does it really mean, and what does it really look like? So one of the things we did at HubSpot a few years ago is we developed a framework for what it means to be a good ally. And we did an allyship month that featured a bunch of different people talking about their allyship journeys. So talking about how they got comfortable interrupting bias or behavior within their own team, how they did the work and how they learned more. So a good example would be we had a lot of folks this summer who are white women learning more about how white women have not participated enough in advancing the careers, the opportunities for women of color in the workplace. Sometimes hearing from people that just haven't done it perfectly, didn't get a master's degree in race and race relations or critical race theory and hearing their journeys and going, okay, I could do that. I could certainly speak up a little bit more often. And what we found with allyship is it's really comprised of a few things. One, it's the willingness to do the work versus expecting your uh, underrepresented colleagues to do the work for you. Two, it's a willingness to speak up, to really walk the walk versus just talking the talk. When something happens in a team, it's a willingness to speak up and say, hey, I saw that, or what did you mean by that? Or let's have a conversation about that and to interrupt bias. And then the third is to acknowledge and support people's lived experiences without having to not always necessarily have lived it yourself. And so we talk a lot at HubSpot about the fact that one of our core values being empathy doesn't mean kindness. It doesn't mean just I'm nice to you. It means truly understanding that the experience of, for example, a single parent at HubSpot 
is different than my experience. And so rather than speaking for them or saying, I totally understand, I've had a similar challenges in my life, to really be able to sit with their experience and understand it and support them and be a resource for them if they need it. And so to me, great allyship is a combination of those three things. But I do think it's important to help people in your organization understand what great allyship looks like and give them powerful examples that feel relatable to everyone. Doing the work, speaking up and acknowledge and support people's lived experiences. That's exactly right. I think everyone can think of good examples of how they might do each of those. What are some things that you've seen work really well in in those categories? What are things that people have done that have been impactful? Yeah. So on the speaking up side of things, I think that can be really awkward. It feels like it can be super confrontational. And so one of my favorite things that we did is at one point we held a brainstorm for what's worked for people. And one of the most powerful ones that people loved was just saying, wow, after Mm. someone said something, wow, right? That's not like... Daniel, you know, what the heck were you thinking? That's not, it's just like acknowledging the moment. And so just saying, wow. Or one of the things that someone shared on an allyship Zoom that I just loved was someone referred to something as, you know, that's so gay, is that so Katie? And they were like, that's so Katie. What do you, like, help me understand what you mean by that. Nicely saying, let's just talk about what we really mean. And so in other words, it's not, wow, that was homophobic. It's let's just call this out for what it is. When you say that's so Katie, what do you actually mean by that? And then the third thing people shared was conversations that didn't have to happen in a public setting. So that sometimes the best interrupting of behaviors happens one-on-one where I say, I'm hoping this wasn't your intention, but I just have to tell you, here's how this came off in the room. It made me feel uncomfortable. My guess is it made other people feel uncomfortable. And so I think just recognizing that upstander behavior doesn't have to be inherently contentious and sharing ways that actually work on that front. On doing the work, I think it's just, unfortunately, after George Floyd was killed, I think there were a lot of people asking their Black friends, colleagues, or coworkers to do the work for them. And so to me, what doing the work looks like in that instance is really being willing to, for example, say, I'm not going to ask someone to educate me on this topic. I'm instead going to do the reading, watch the movie, reflect on it with my team, have a conversation with my family. I am not going to ask someone else to do emotional labor that I am not willing or able to do. And then I think they support and engage. Oftentimes what people from underrepresented groups want in an organization is just the simple ability to have their feelings or experiences acknowledged by other people. And I think there's a tendency to want to fix or interrupt. And I think Mm -hmm. just being able to sit with, I cannot imagine the sadness that you're experiencing, or I cannot imagine how this felt to see on the news. I think those are some of the most powerful words that allies can share, even in experiences that they don't necessarily personally understand. Wonderful. I want to write all those down on index cards and carry them around with me. (laughs) Anyone who works in the tech industry likely has an element of perfectionism. You know, we're all driven. And so one of the things people want to do is when do you know what good looks like in an allyship journey? And like, to your point on writing it down on note cards, I sometimes have to remind myself, I sometimes have to put note cards back in my bookcase and say, you know what, I didn't do this well. And so really thinking about it as a journey that you have to practice every day and always approach with a level of humility, I think takes some of the expectation out of it that you have to be great or perfect versus good and always improving. I would love to learn a little bit more about how you interview at HubSpot. What are the 
principles or practices that you use to do good interviewing and how does that relate to DEI? Is that a separate type of interview or is it woven throughout? I think it has to be woven throughout. And when you talk about DEI work, oftentimes people will talk about events or celebrations or just mentorship and sponsorship, which by the way, all of those things are really important. But when it comes down to building inclusive interview kits, we talked about the panel of interviewers and then also of candidates. There shouldn't be at HubSpot a diversity interviewing kit and then a regular interviewing kit. It should just be, this is how we do great interviewing. And so it starts with this concept of we're really going to do skills-based interviewing, and we're really going to push hiring managers on what skills are required for a given job and role. And then we're going to assign people in their greenhouse interview kit very clear attributes that they are looking for and very clear questions or tools to get to the heart of what that skill is and how it might take place within that team. And the act of aligning on it beforehand means that when I get midstream on an interview, I can't raise my hand and penalize you as a candidate for not having a skill that hasn't been prioritized for this job or role. And it means that when I'm interviewing, I'm going to be asking the same questions of each candidate. So I really get a good apples to apples comparison of anyone in our process. The rigor and scientific approach of doing it that way feels a little bit more structured, but ultimately leads to better outcomes, better, higher quality hires, and oh, by the way, much more diverse teams. And so I don't think people talk enough about the fact that really some of the most important work you can do in building more diverse teams is to focus on the skills and attributes you really need for a role versus relying upon, for example, degrees or years of experience or how well someone knows something or how flashy someone is training interviewers to seek out and assess those skills in objective ways, and then running debriefs that really align to those skills versus allowing people to talk about skills or behaviors that weren't even on the list for that role to begin with. I see so many job descriptions that say five years of experience, bachelor's degree or equivalent required. Are you saying that's not what I should do? Hopefully not at HubSpot. You shouldn't be seeing those. The reality is I will admit to you, Daniel, I was someone who grew up saying like, well, years of experience is a good proxy, right? We want someone who's done this work before. And the reality is what you know a good recruiter would push me on is to say the five years of experience is really just a proxy for the skill that you need to get to. So in other words, if you are a proficient project manager, it actually shouldn't matter to me whether you have five years of experience or 50 years of experience, the excellence at project management is really the skill I'm looking for. And so if you are someone who's hiring a lot of people, it's looking yourself in the mirror and going, you can still get the things that you really value in a candidate without using the traditional crutches we use to get that. And then you use the example of a BA There's a ton of great research out in the world on the corporate skills gap and how it's developed over time. And one of the biggest problems that's occurred over time is that when you have someone who leaves your organization, many of those folks do not or will not have a BA or a master's degree or an advanced degree and will, by the way, have been super successful at your org. But when they leave, all of a sudden you're like, oh, let's just use the job description we have and we'll make sure we get someone from with a BA or with a master's degree, we use education as a proxy for experience or skill. And doing that has huge negative implications, not just for race, but also socioeconomic diversity, 
access to more rural areas in the United States. And so really pushing ourselves to go, what is the skill someone actually needs versus assuming that a degree is what gives you that skill, I think is an important distinction. And honestly, it's a hard conversation to have with hiring managers. That was a tough one to sell at HubSpot because many of us are really proud of our education and where we went to school. But what you have to remind yourself is eliminating years of experience or a BA requirement does absolutely nothing to devalue your personal experience or if you had a wonderful experience in higher education. All it does is make sure it focuses on the skills and experience that's needed to do the job, particularly when you know and understand the complexities of access and higher education. And so I think we've had some tough conversations on that front, but ultimately it is so freeing as a hiring manager to really mm -hmm. focus on skills. One of the not so little secrets of post-COVID life is that more and more companies are going to be recruiting your candidates. So it used to be, if you were, you know, a wonderful company in San Francisco, you had an advantage because you were able to recruit talent from the Bay Area. But oh, by the way, it was super expensive and often had a different talent market in Chicago and Portland, Oregon. And then, oh, by the way, Boise, Idaho had a different market on that front. And right now, all of us are trying to recruit all of those people. And so the more barriers that you put in every job description, the more you're holding yourself back from an amazing candidate who might live in a state or city that you've never visited and where your network isn't as strong. And so rather than thinking about all the horrible things that could go wrong if you hired someone without the same degree you have, instead think about all the opportunities that's opening up in markets and with candidates who might not otherwise have applied to your role. So just to be clear, you're not saying don't include a bachelor's degree as a requirement as some kind of compromise that like, hey, we can make do with people who don't have a bachelor's degree. You're actually saying it gives you an advantage to look beyond that. Absolutely. And I think the companies that are most willing to look in the mirror and figure out ways where they can open up the talent opportunity index for their organization versus close it off are going to be the ones that win long term. I love that idea. It's a great concept. Katie, I could talk to you for hours and days, but I think we're going to have to leave it here. This has been an incredibly wide-ranging and informative discussion. Thank you so much. I'm so glad it was helpful. Great to chat to you as always, Daniel. I'm joined today as always by my friend Ariel Lopez. Ariel is the founder and CEO of NAC, a data-driven talent platform. Hey, Ariel. Hey, Dan. What's shaking? Well, Ariel, we were talking and I said, let's talk about metrics. And you said, oh, metrics. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> Why is it that everyone hates talking about data, right? even though this industry is powered by it? Well, there's a common phrase among leaders. What is measured gets managed. It's true that capturing metrics and reporting are the most important and possibly the most controversial part of diversity hiring. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's not an easy thing. And I think if we take it outside of just it being D, E, and I metrics, you think about things in life that are uneasy. What do you have a tendency to do with those things? You avoid them. You sweep them under the rug. You do everything that you can to not tackle it hands-on because you know when you do, you're going to have to come to terms with something. For a lot of companies, they know that the metrics are not where they want them to be. And it's hard to come to terms with where things are today and still be optimistic about the future. First and foremost, 
you're unable to even see the future or make those stretch goals if you don't get clear about where you are today and, and where you need to improve. What do you think? It's great advice. In addition to the emotional reaction of not wanting to see the numbers so you don't have to face up to it, you've also got the terrible L word involved, lawyers. And (laughs) when you start putting together data that shows real problems or real challenges that your company has around diversity and equity, lawyers get scared and people worry that if that data is out there, it's going to create problems. For companies to really make change, they know they have to look at the data, but figuring out ways to measure their DE&I while keeping separate the idea of treating each individual like an individual and not like a statistic is a mindset shift that it's hard for them to make. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Thanks as always for sharing your great wisdom, Mariel. A pleasure to talk to you. It was great speaking with you as always to Dan. Thanks for listening to the Greenhouse Hiring for What's Next podcast series on diversity in hiring. Please make sure to leave your thoughts in the comments and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. For now, take care and be well.